chapter 3. And last week we looked uh, uh, we looked at uh, the first uh, oh seven or eight verses or so of chapter three, and uh, today we want to pick up from there and read on. Uh, let's just read the entire chapter beginning in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. uh, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay. Going back to those first uh, seven or eight verses or so that we looked at last week, what do you remember from last week's lesson? <coughs> Okay, it it really appears that way, doesn't it? From the way the the way the passage is written, is that Adam was with Eve when this whole scene was going on. What does that tell us? What do we learn from that? He wasn't protecting her. He wasn't making the serpent submissive to him. Okay. He wasn't doing. Yeah. He wasn't taking. Well, he wasn't taking dominion. And he wasn't giving the kind of leadership uh, to his to his wife that he should have been giving. <coughs> what else? That he wasn't deceived, that he chose. Okay. Uh, scripture makes that very clear. It's a very clear distinction. Paul makes it very clear for us. Is that the woman was deceived, but Paul says specifically the man was not deceived. Uh, so there is, so there is some sense in which the uh, in which the sin of Adam is, if possible, even more grievous than the sin of Eve, in that he just consciously went into it with his eyes wide open. I, you know, I I grope for an understanding of why he did that, <laughs> given the paradise that he was in and and the perfect environment that he had and the fellowship with God, and I ask myself why, 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 and and of course. We can't really discover the answer to that question. Uh, there is no logic. There is no reason for sin, ultimately. And that's one of the things we're going to think about today is oftentimes we, we try and find some reason or some explanation for our behavior, uh, but uh, there really is none. What else from last week?
Yeah, Satan there in the wilderness, uh, and we talked about this when we went through Luke, that Satan in the wilderness is really offering to Christ, is offering to Jesus the things that that are ultimately going to be his. The difference is that he had to go in order to in order to acquire those things according to the will of God. He had to go through the cross, and what Satan was presenting to him was a way to have the things that that the Father was offering to him without the cross. And uh, and to some degree, that's exactly the same kind of thing that's going on here in the garden. Is that is that Satan is offering to Eve the benefits of the knowledge of good and evil without the difficulty of obedience. So he's offering her a shortcut. And that shortcut, of course, also involves autonomy from God. He's saying to you, you can have this knowledge apart from God. And this whole idea of autonomy comes out again and again in this passage and this story and then all the way through Genesis of people choosing to do things their own way uh, and operate independent of, of God and independent of dependence upon God. What else? Is there anything in the comic? Why did he show himself as a serpent rather than a bird or a cow? Uh, I, I, I think, personally, and, and I, this is probably speculation to some degree, but I think it is because the serpent was the craftiest, was in some sense at that point the the wisest of all the animals that God had made, and so he chose to operate through the serpent. Uh, aside from that, I, I don't have an explanation for that. I personally don't like snakes. <laughs> I periodically have snake nightmares. <laughs> and I was actually thinking about that this week. And I think maybe God's trying to tell me something through these periodic nightmares that I have about snakes. But, uh, so I can't really answer your question.
and you got all this other wonderful all around yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, I, I, I really don't know the answer, but but it does mention that at least a couple times in the past in the text. So, that, so that is, there is apparently some significance to that. Rick, I don't know if you guys talked about this with someone on last week. Did you talk about the introduction of shame? Uh, we did talk about it some. Uh, what did you guys discuss? <laughs> <laughs> I just was looking at that. It doesn't specifically say that, but, uh, but the idea that sin made them aware that they were naked and yes. shame yes. attached to we, that. We talked about the play on words, and uh, that play on words is extended on even into the passage that we're going to look at today. Uh, but there are three words there uh, that are very similar. The word in chapter 2, verse 25, the word for naked there is aram, and then the word for uh, for crafty in verse uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, is the word eram, which is an e instead of an a, and then uh, and then the word for naked in uh, let me make sure I got this right here. Uh, I get confused on these spellings. Uh, uh, I've got it written down here somewhere. Uh, no, I'm not seeing it. Uh, I had it written up here on the board last week. So in verse seven. Okay, and then in verse seven, the word for naked is is a very similar but different word. But those three words, naked in two twenty five, naked in three seven, and and crafty in three one, are all within one letter. Uh, of one another, so it's it's like the Hebrew writer there is is uh, is using a play on word to emphasize uh, the the move from the nakedness of the, the transformation of the of, from the nakedness of 225, which is a nakedness of innocence, to uh, uh, because of the craftiness and the subtlety of the serpent in 3:1, you end up. With the nakedness of three seven, which is a different word, and that nakedness carries with it the idea of shame and guilt and the judgment of God. And so, so there's very clearly a, a play on words. And then we actually, when the when when he begins in the passage that we're looking at today to talk about the curse, that is another word. There's only one letter difference from all these other from these other three words. And so it's this it's this play on words from the nakedness of innocence to the uh, because of the subtlety of the serpent, you have the nakedness of guilt, and then ultimately you have the curse. And the serpent goes from being crafty to being cursed, and there's just one letter difference there in the in the, in the word between uh, between them. So, uh, so it's an interesting play on words that that it really seems like uh, the writer is trying to emphasize this contrast between the innocence before the fall and the shame and the guilt. Uh, that's associated with their nakedness after the fall, and that's what they see when they finally get this knowledge of good and evil. What they actually see is they don't get this wonderful, glorious, beautiful knowledge. What they get is a knowledge of their own shame and their guilt and their sin, because they have not simply acquired a knowledge of sin; they have imbibed of it. They have eaten it. They've taken it into their person. Interesting. As Christians, we are attempting to reverse that very process. Yeah. Turn purity back into that yeah. nakedness, if you will, or, or whatever. Especially in marriage, yeah. uh, return that purity back as God's described, yeah. and, and that's why it's such a fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
Well, so we come to the passage today, and we'll see how far we get through this uh, uh, this story. Of course, you're familiar now with this story, and you're familiar with the uh, uh, with this whole confrontation between God and Adam and Eve. You've read about this. You've learned about it since you were a kid in Sunday school class or whatever. So it's a very familiar passage to us, and you're familiar with a number of the parts of it. Uh, and, and in the passage, there are a number of things that are fairly obvious to us that kind of jump out and stand out to us, and we probably have talked about them and thought about them and heard sermons about them and whatever. And we'll look at some of those things, but I also want to think about some of the things uh, perhaps that aren't as obvious to us in this passage as we go through it. Uh, but, uh, but just thinking about what happens here. Now we have Adam and Eve. And, and they were in this, they were in paradise. They were in the Garden of Eden. They were, uh, they were without sin. They were completely innocent. Uh, they had no knowledge of evil. Uh, they had perfect fellowship with God. Uh, in, in the passage that we're looking at today, God comes to the garden uh, walking in the cool of the day. And, and, and most, uh, I think most commentators and most of us, read into that the idea that this isn't the first time he's done this. So this is the first time it's mentioned in the passage. But we kind of assume this was God's habit. This is what he would do. He would come and he would walk through the garden and he would fellowship with the man. He would tell the man what he wanted him to do and they would interact together and God would meet his needs and provide for him a woman and tell him about the tree and all that sort of thing. So all of this presumably occurs as God comes and just literally walks through the garden or, or, or comes and visits the man in the garden. And this is the, this is the beauty that we see and the wonder that we see before the fall. And we have this beautiful world that's perfectly created and, and everything is, is working beautifully. Of course, at some point, uh, at some point from, the, from the outset of creation, we do have the fall of Lucifer. But it is important for us to recognize that even though Lucifer has fallen and he's taken with him, a third of the heavenly uh, creatures with him in his fall that has not impacted the creation. It has not impacted the cosmos or the, or the earth. It's still all this beautiful, uh, perfect, uh, bountiful, uh, magnificent creation. Okay, And that's important for us to remember. But then we have the serpent comes and he entices the woman and he deceives her and she takes of the fruit and then she gives it to her husband and he eats of it. And then, as we talked about at the end of the lesson last week, everything just immediately changes. At that moment, all the creation is subjected, Scripture says, to futility. And you just get this, if you can kind of imagine it, you know, just this, it's just like this wave that goes out from from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where Adam and Eve are standing where they had eaten of the fruit and there's just this wave of destruction goes out from them out throughout the entire garden and out across the face of the earth and ultimately out to the furthest corners of the cosmos. The entire creation is in that moment subjected to futility. So there's this beautiful creation that God that God has created and He's created for His glory and He's created for man's pleasure. And now man, in one simple act of disobedience, has destroyed it all. And I I didn't mention this last week. I didn't have time, but I, but one of the things that I think about is is that just contemplating the impact of Adam and Eve's sin makes me stop and think, what is, the, what is the impact of my sin? 
You know, it's, it's very easy to see with Adam and Eve how destructive that one little act of eating the fruit. I mean, they didn't kill each other. They didn't, you know, they, they didn't, you know, they didn't shake their fist at God and outwardly blaspheme, or you know, they didn't do anything really horrible. All they did was simply eat of a piece of fruit that God told them not to. That's all they did. But we see the terrible consequences of that. That every single evil thing that has occurred from the beginning of time to today. And all the horrible things that are going on in the world, as we said in this class today, that are going on in this world today, all of it goes back to that one act. And I think about that and I think, is it possible that there is some sense or some way in which any sin of mine is equally as devastating or significant now, admittedly, we wouldn't be able to see it because now we're living in a fallen world. But I just wonder. You know, we, my, I'm, I'm fallen and when I had children, I expected them to be fallen and I expected them to disobey. And, and you know, I expected all that stuff because that's the context of the world we live in. So in some degree, maybe all the evil that's already in the world masks and covers the consequences of the choices that I make. And I wonder, you know, I really have very little doubt that if if I hadn't had sin and the world had been perfect up to up to the point where I was born and then I came along and I sinned, then I think it'd be very obvious what the ramifications of my sin. And I you know that's something to explore or think about. I don't think there's any way to say emphatically uh, how, how extensive the consequences of each of our individual sins are. But I think it is very clear that they are far greater, far more profound, and far more far-reaching than any of us ever really give serious thought to. Well, you know, Rick, we would like to think there's really not that much impact. Yeah. It's yeah. not that big of a deal. Yeah. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. That's what we think. But I think it, it, it serves us well to think about the impact of Adam and sin and how... How, in some senses, how little their sin was, and yet how great its consequences. Okay. Well, so this is what happened. In the world, the whole creation, this whole beautiful thing, is now subjected to futility and groaning and travailing and all that sort of thing. Now enters into the world and into the creation, uh, as again, as I say, all the way out to the furthest reaches of the cosmos because of their sin. And now this man and woman are filled with shame, and so they, what do they do? They hide. They try to hide from each other by putting on these loincloths, loin garments made of fig leaves, which is another expression of their effort at autonomy from God. And they also try to hide from God. They go out and they hide in, in the creation that God has made and they try to hide themselves from God. Now, why does Adam try to hide from God? Okay, he's afraid. Why is he afraid? Why does he say he's afraid? Pardon? What does it say? What does it say why he's why he was afraid? Because he was naked. Now this is the interesting thing. That with that with Adam, now that he's sinned, his his thinking is all screwed up. Because because what's not foremost in his mind 
is that he has sinned and offended a holy God, what is foremost in his mind is that he's naked. In other words, the focus of his fear and the focus of his apprehension now in the presence of God is not, is not so much the sin itself as it is the consequences of his sin. Does that sound familiar? We get, we get all hung up about the consequences of our sin and we just kind of gloss over the sin itself. And Adam is Adam is is running from God, and of course, ultimately, he's running from God because he sinned. But what is he thinking in his mind? He's not thinking, "Oh, I sinned." He's thinking, "Oh, I'm naked." You know, it's totally ridiculous. You know, as if God didn't know he was naked. God made him. But this is how this is how messed up our thinking gets with sin. Is we is the one thing we ought to be thinking about, we don't think about, which is that we sin. The one thing that, that, or one, or one of the things that maybe we, we shouldn't think about, but if the purpose of that is to drive us to think about our sin, is our consequences, and he's so focused on the consequences that he's really not even thinking about the sin. So he runs and he hides. So he's hiding, he's hiding from God. Now here's God. He's created this beautiful, beautiful universe, beautiful cosmos, beautiful earth. He's planted this beautiful garden. He's put man in it. It's just been, and now man has just absolutely destroyed it. He's disobeyed him. He hasn't trusted him. He hasn't loved him. He's disobeyed him, and he's he's eaten of the fruit. What should God do? I mean, if you were God, what would you do? As a parent, you always say, you know, you do this, you're going to get consequences. This is what your consequences will do. God's given us the consequences because He said, this is what you happen. Don't do this, or this will happen. As a parent, you say, well, that's okay. Well, then the next guy, the kid says, there's no consequences in this, so. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about those consequences here in a minute. But, you know, I think if I were God, you know, I'd just get out the eraser. Yeah, let's just start over. I mean, he told them that in the day they ate of it, they would die. I mean, so, you know, what was to keep God from just... I mean, they they had just messed everything up. So, yeah, it would have been. Certainly for him, it would have been the easy thing to do. But God doesn't do that, does he? What does he do instead? Pardon? Soften that. Soften that. He seeks them. He seeks them. How many times in your life have you disobeyed God? You've messed everything all up. And you just go, man, He really ought to just wipe me out. What does He do? He comes seeking you. He comes seeking you. And and the thing that the thing about this passage, you know, we read this passage and we're going to talk about all these consequences of sin and all that sort of thing, and talk about the curse and all that sort of stuff, you know, and, and all of that is in the passage. This is a wonderful passage, folks. This is a fantastic passage, and it starts right here in verse one and in verse nine, where God comes 
seeking those sinners who have disobeyed him, who have distrusted him, who have destroyed his creation, who have shaken their fists in his face, so to speak, when they had everything going for them. And yet, what does God do? He comes and he seeks them. Now, he comes into the garden, he's walking through the garden, and he says, uh, Adam, where are you? Well, why does he do that? Okay. okay. God really isn't wondering where they're at. He knows exactly where they're at. God does that a lot of times with us, doesn't he? <laughs> it's not it's not God finding out where we're at, it's us finding out where we're at. And why we're where we are. And so God leads them through this process of discovery, which He does in our lives so oftentimes. He leads us through a process of discovery. Because as we've already seen, Adam isn't thinking real clearly right now, and neither is Eve. And so what's necessary now is that in order, in order to, to recover something good out of this mess that Adam and Eve have made of things, in order to recover something good out of it. God has to come and seek them out and then God has to lead them on a process of discovery to understand what they have done and what the consequences for that will be. And so that's what he does. He begins. And so he begins this process and he starts with Adam because Adam is the one who is ultimately responsible. And he confronts Adam. And then he confronts Eve. And then he issues the curse on the serpent. Then he talks about the consequences for Eve, and then he comes back to Adam again and gives Adam his consequences. So it's that kind of that, that literary form that we see there. Adam, Eve, the serpent, Eve, and Adam. Again, that kind of type of thing that we talked about before. Okay. So uh, so he he asks the man, he says, Where are you? And the man says, Well, I you know, I, I hid because I was naked and I was afraid of you because I was naked and I, you know. And so God says what? Who told you? Who told you? How did you learn this? <laughs> you know, and Adam's going, oh, I said too much already. <laughs> you know. And God says, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now I want you to notice that God twice in his conversations with Adam emphasizes that he gave a commandment to him. He doesn't do that with Eve. But with Adam, he emphasizes twice here, and then later, he says it again. I gave you a commandment. And it lays the emphasis again on the thing we talked about last week, is how could Eve have avoided being deceived? You know, when we think about deception, we think, well, we're just kind of helpless when it comes to deception. But we are not helpless when it comes to deception, and that's very clear by the fact that God holds, even though Eve was deceived, she says she was deceived, the Scripture says... Uh, uh, repeatedly that she was deceived, even though she was deceived, it's clear that God holds her responsible for that, implying that we are not helpless in the face of deception. So what is, and we talked about this last week, what is our defense against being deceived? The Word of God. And God is emphasizing that with Adam. I gave you a commandment. Do not eat of this tree. Have you eaten of the tree? And then Adam's response is what? You 
He's gone. He immediately points, and she immediately points. He's God's fault. He's God's fault. But he never said I ate. He does say I ate. He does say I ate. Yeah. He does say I ate. He says, you know, this woman you gave to me, she gave me the tree, and I ate. Okay. So ultimately, he acknowledges that he broke the commandment. But before he does that, he wants to suck some other people in on this thing to kind of, you know, kind of diffuse the wrath of God. So he's going to spread the blame around. Okay. And and it is important that he that he attributes blame directly to whom? To Eve. Okay. This woman you gave me, she gave it to me. Okay. No discussion of what he was doing while she was being tempted, you know, that he was standing right there watching this whole process. You know, there's no discussion of that. It's just she gave me the tree of the fruit of the tree and I ate, okay? And so she he tries to shove some of the blame off on her. But ultimately, as Mike points out, who else does he blame? Yeah. He blames God. Now this is you know, this is you know we don't do this, do we? We don't do this. I mean, we, we would never think of blaming God for our sin. Every single time we blame circumstances for our wrong choices, we're blaming God. Every time I blame I remember, it's not a very pretty time in my life, but there was a time in my life when I was very angry. And I was... I was angry because here my excuse. <laughs> I was angry because there were all these problems that I was having in my life at this time. I was in an occupation I didn't like, and I was not making much money, and I was struggling financially, and I was having difficulties in my relationship with my wife, and there's just you know just a whole you know how life is you know just life was just really rough right there at that time, and 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 I reached a breaking point one day, uh, and. And there was, uh, I was having a problem with things, objects, and I just blew my stack. I just, you know, it all blew up. You know. Not at people. I blew up at things. I don't t- typically blow up at people. I tend to blow up at things. And, uh, and so I, that's interesting too. I won't go there. But anyway, can we talk about that? <laughs> we need to talk about that. At any rate, I, I, and I just, you know, I just was throwing things. I, you know, I know this isn't a very good picture of me, but you got to know I'm this way, okay? So I, I just, and it was right in front of all five of my kids. So, you know, my kids were out in the yard playing, and they saw this, you know, dad's throwing things and breaking things, and, you know. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and later that night, I had to go in the bedroom with But I said, why am I so angry? Well, I'm angry because I'm struggling financially and I got this and that. And I went, God could change all that. And I know it. And it really dawned on me for the first time in my life that I was really mad at Him. Now, if you're mad at God, better fess up. You know, it's, I mean, I know it's very unbaptist and very unchristian to talk in terms of being angry at God. But if you're angry at God, maybe you ought to sit down. So, God, man, I just don't like, I don't like what you put on my platter, and I don't think you're being fair with me, and we need to talk about this, and you tell me that. 
And in that process, God will bring you around. But you can't, you can't get over that anger and that blaming God until you acknowledge that that's what you were doing. So at any rate, he's, he's blaming God. Now the interesting thing to me is, ultimately, finally he says, I ate. You know, maybe reluctantly, but he acknowledges that he ate. And at that point, God moves on. See it? God is saying, now wait a minute, Adam. Now, yeah, you admitted that you ate, but you're blaming Eve and you're blaming me. He doesn't do that, does he? He just moves on. He's got what he wanted from Adam at this point, which is Adam's acknowledgement that he broke the commandment. And I go, well, does it not matter to God that Adam is blaming other people? Well, yeah, it does matter to God, which is why when God comes back to Adam, he will come back with consequences. And the nasty thing about the consequences of the things we do is they make it very clear to us that God holds us responsible, right? Because you'll notice he gives Eve consequences and he gives Adam consequences. He also gives the serpent consequences. He gives consequences to each. Why? Because he holds each responsible. So even though Adam is kind of trying to share the blame around a little bit, God just, God just leaves that for now. But he's going to come back to it and he's going to give... He's going to give Adam some consequences in his life. And all through his life, as he's working by the sweat of his brow, and as he gets older and he realizes he's going to die, he's going, God holds me responsible for what I did. God holds me accountable for what I did. And so that's one of the wonderful things about the consequences of sin, if I can use that use that phrase. One of the wonderful things about the consequences of sin is it lets me know that God holds me responsible for what I did. And it's about time I quit shifting the blame. I started to stop pointing the finger at others. Maybe others played a part in it. God will deal with them and they will have their own consequences. But I need to fess up to what I'm responsible for. <clears throat> so then God moves on and he goes to Eve. And he says to Eve, what have you done? Well, now, she's actually done two things. What has she done? Okay, and so she then ate. Okay, and what else did she do? Here, Adam. She gave it to her husband. She took the leadership in the relationship. She usurped his position of leadership. Wasn't hard to do because he wasn't exercising a lot of it at the time. But she still shouldn't have done it. She could have actually passed a little blame at Adam, but she did. <laughs> she passed it to the serpent. She said, well, the serpent beguiled me, and I ate. So, is that an adequate enough excuse? If I'm deceived and I sin because I'm deceived, am I now off the hook? No, I'm not. Am I? He was not off the hook because she was deceived. She was responsible for not having believed and trusted and obeyed the word of God that God had given to her regardless of whatever else other input she had. And the world is coming at us from all kinds of different directions. We were talking about this early in class. You know, we get all this input from the world and it's telling us, you know, well, this is okay and this is not okay and, you know, and, and all this. And, and eventually we start listening to the world and we start acting out that way and then we go, well, God, you know, it was the world around me. It deceived me. It fooled me into thinking this way. And God says, I'm sorry. I gave you my word. 
You had my word all along. The problem was not the world. The problem was that you chose not to meditate daily on my word. So she blames the serpent. Then he turns to the serpent. Now there's a difference. Notice the difference in how he dealt with Adam and how he dealt with Eve and how he dealt with the serpent. What's the difference between how he dealt with Adam and Eve and how he dealt with the serpent? Yeah, he, he didn't mess around. Okay, he just cuts to the chase. Okay, he goes right to he goes right to the consequences. Okay, because you have done this thing, and then he pronounces this curse. Now we talk about the curse, okay, and it's important that we understand the curse. Okay. <clears throat> but he 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 says here, "Cursed are you." Speaking to the serpent, more than all the beasts of the field, more than all cattle and all beasts of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Okay. And I want you to notice, he curses the serpent, and he curses the ground. He does not curse Adam and Eve. Got that? He curses the serpent, and he curses the ground, but he does not curse Adam and Eve. Because he's going to offer to Adam and Eve forgiveness, and restoration, and healing, and fellowship. He's going to offer to them all that. He's going to give to them this great promise. Okay, So he does not curse them. So it's important that we understand the curse. And when we talk about the curse, uh, and we talk about the curse that's on the ground, or we talk about the curse that's on Satan, or on the serpent, that's one thing. But, but, but let's don't get confused here and think that that mankind is under the curse because we're not. But he didn't curse her. the woman because he her kind of But he didn't curse her. That's the difference. There's a consequence for sin, but consequence for sin is not a curse. And in fact, the curse the curse involves uh, one of the things the curse involves is this uh, is the in- inability to fulfill your destiny. And the woman's destiny was to do what? To bear children. That's one of the reasons she was brought into the world. So even though she's going to do it with great, much more difficulty, she's still going to do it. Man was made to have dominion over the earth. He's still going to have dominion over the earth. It's just going to be a lot more difficult to do. Okay. So there are consequences to sin, but we should not, we should not confuse the consequences of sin with the curse. Okay. So he pronounces this curse, and, and, and we have to be careful here when we're talking about this first curse, the one on the serpent, because we, because we really have two entities in the serpent. What are they? Satan and the snake. Okay, we've got the snake and we've got Satan. Okay? And, and, and the curse uh, really applies to both. Okay? So you have a curse upon the snake, and, the, and that curse is what? Okay, on belly, on his belly, eating dust. Okay, now, <clears throat> so the idea of being on his belly, going on his belly—that's the—that creates this picture of just absolute, total, abject humiliation. Okay, and throughout Scripture, the idea of eating dust is, is uh, communicates the idea, the idea of total defeat. Okay, complete defeat. So, for example, uh, in Malachi. God is talking about the defeat of his enemies, and he talks about how they're going to eat dust. Okay, that's <clears throat> so. 
So the idea there that's communicated in the curse as it's placed upon the snake, okay, is this idea of complete humiliation and defeat. Okay. Now, <clears throat> what possible difference does that make to a snake? Does he care? Does the snake care that he goes on his belly and that he eats dust? Well, it proves evolution, though. legs, apparently. It really doesn't. It doesn't matter to a snake. I mean, you know, every creature God created the way it is, and some go under the ground, some, you know, and you know, worms they eat there all the time, you know. So <clears throat> it really doesn't matter. So why did God do that? Why did He curse the snake? I mean, I can understand why he cursed Satan, but why did he curse the snake? Turn over to Isaiah chapter 65. This is an interesting verse. together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. So, you know, you get this beautiful picture, these beasts of prey that we're all so scared of. Now they're all just lying down together, lying with the lamb and all that sort of thing. And then what does it say? Dust shall be the serpent's food. Even in the millennial kingdom, the serpent is still going to be eating dust. Why? Why? What's the point? If eating dust is an expression of, of absolute, total defeat, why in the millennial kingdom is the serpent still eating dust? Okay. But what difference does it make to a snake? It's just a dumb animal. It doesn't know the difference. It's a symbol for us. It's for us. So every time you see that snake slithering through the grass, you know, through the dirt, eating dirt, it's a, it's a re- reminder to you that your enemy has been that's why Ginger should not kill the snakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, but there is that part about the seed crushing the serpent's head. <laughs> we haven't gotten to that one. It looks like we're not going to get that far today. But the whole curse on the serpent was not... You know, I mean, it's just a dumb animal. It was animated and and possessed by Satan, okay? But that was just one snake, okay? So what we have to understand is that, is that and, and, and I'm not going to sit here and speculate like some people like to do about what the snake was like before the fall. I have no idea if it was flying through the sky or what it was doing. But now I know that when I see a snake on the ground, one of the things that God wants me to remember is that my enemy is defeated. That he is absolutely, totally, and completely defeated. 
and always will be, and there is no forgiveness. That's the nature of a curse, is that you're in it and you can't get out of it. Okay? And, and that's why we say, man, man and woman were not cursed, because we are going to get out of it. We are going to get out of this mess. Okay? But the serpent never will. Okay, now there's a second part of the curse. There's one part that's on the serpent, and the other part is on what? Is on Satan, okay? And here, the elements of the curse that, that uh, unfold to us now have to do with, with, uh, with Satan. Because he says, uh, I got lost here, let me get back down. He says, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than all every beast of the field. On your belly you will go. And thus you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, clearly, clearly, he's talking about something much more profound here than the snake. One thing I want you to notice when he talks there about the bruising, okay, uh, and verse. Or verse 15, he says, he says, I will put enmity between whom? Who's the enemy going to be between? You and the woman, okay? So you being the serpent or, the, or Satan, okay? Excuse me. And between your seed and her seed. Okay? And he shall bruise who? Who will be bruised? The serpent. The serpent in the garden, or Satan. Okay. What what I'm trying to point out to you is that it's the seed of the woman, someone in the far distant future, who is going to bruise the serpent who is in the garden. So clearly now he's talking about whom. He's talking about Satan. He's not talking about the snake because that snake is going to be long gone by the time the seed comes around. Okay. So it is the it is the it is the serpent himself, i.e., Satan. Now he's talking about is going to be bruised by this long distance seed of the woman. Okay. Now we need to understand that the word seed is used several ways in the Old Testament. It is used sometimes to refer to an immediate descendant. So, for example, Isaac was the seed of Abraham. Okay, so uh, so it's used to refer to an immediate descendant. Sometimes it's used to refer to a large group of descendants. So we speak of the Israelites or the Jews being the descendants of Abraham, right? Okay, and and so we speak of them being the seed of Abraham. Okay, and then sometimes it refers to a a a, a distant descendant, singular. Okay, so for example. Jesus is referred to as the seed of David, of the seed of David. Okay, So it's used in all three ways in the Old Testament. And here it's used at least in a couple ways. One, it's used to refer to the group, this large group of people. And then it's also used to refer to a singular seed. And in the case where he says, he, singular, will bruise your head, he's obviously speaking of a singular, singular person sometime in the distant future. Now, this is we're not going to get much further than this today, and so we'll pick up this lesson uh, next week instead of going on to the one I handed the handout sheet on. Uh, but you know this routine. But there are a couple things I want to point out. 
Uh, when God says to the serpent that he's going to put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and Adam and Eve are standing there and they're listening to this, what are they hearing? What do they discover all of a sudden? They're not going to die in the way they may have thought. They're not going to die right away. And there are going to be descendants. And the curse that is pronounced upon the serpent, Adam and Eve get the first glimmer of salvation. Now he says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. And commentators have pretty well generally agreed on this, at least the ones I looked at. That this is the beginning of the development of that theme that we talked about that we're going to see run all the way through the book of Genesis is that development of the two lines. Remember when we first started the introduction in Genesis, we talked about one of the themes in Genesis is the two lines, the righteous line and the unrighteous line. Okay? And here we first begin to see it referred to. The righteous line and the unrighteous line. Okay. And what he's referring to here, when he says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed, is he's referring to the righteous seed and the unrighteous seed. Now, ultimately, they all come from Eve. But there are those, those, there are those who reproduce the faith of Eve and the spiritual nature of Eve. And those are the righteous seed. And then there are those who reproduce the unbelief and the rebellion that is characterized in the serpent. And that is the unrighteous seed. Okay? And this contrast of the righteous seed and the unrighteous seed, the righteous line and the unrighteous line, will be, begins here in this verse and proceeds then all the way through the book of Genesis. And all the way through the book of Genesis, we're going to be pursuing and following that righteous seed, that righteous line. And as we follow that righteous line all the way through the book of Genesis, as I mentioned in our first study in the first week when we looked at Genesis, uh, as we go down this righteous line, we'll come to these side branches that go off, the unrighteous line that goes off, okay? And it's, you know, it goes off here and it goes down that way. And, then it goes, and we'll stop and we'll look down those lines, but we won't follow those lines because the writer of Genesis doesn't follow those. He follows the righteous line. But the one thing that becomes obvious from the very outset is that, is that, is that there's war going on. There's a war between the righteous and the unrighteous line. Where does it begin? Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. where it starts. So when we get to chapter 4, who knows when we'll get there, but when we get to chapter 4, we'll begin to see this enmity, this hostility that exists between the righteous seed and the unrighteous line. Do not be surprised, friends, Jesus says, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. He told us right back here in Genesis chapter 3, He said, I will put enmity between the unrighteous line and the righteous line, between the unrighteous seed and the righteous seed. And that enmity will exist until God culminates all things in the coming of the Son. Well, we're late, so...